Micah chapter 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's word tonight. Micah chapter 6. Good to see you tonight, Brother Montanez. Glad you made it out tonight. And so it's always good to see Pastor Montanez there. Micah chapter 6. We're going to read just verse 8, and we'll be all throughout the rest of the chapter throughout the sermon. A common verse here that a lot of people are familiar with out of Micah. The Bible says there, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. This morning we looked at our first installment of the sermon, Why Are You Putting God on Trial? Tonight we're going to finish up that sermon. Why are you putting God on trial? Let's pray. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you'd help us again as we uh, look even deeper into this subject, into this topic, into this chapter, Lord, even into this sermon that your prophet Micah preached. Lord, may our hearts be in tune with uh, what you'd have for us tonight. And Lord, as we look at uh, some topics that will dive past those who, uh, maybe, maybe those here tonight that aren't putting you on trial, but Lord, maybe they're just a little careless in some areas of their Christian life. And God, I pray you'd help us all to hit a reset button of sorts tonight. And Lord, may we learn what your character is and then adopt that or attempt to engraft that into our hearts and make that our heartbeat in our character. Be with us now tonight uh, through the preaching of your word. May it melt the ice in the pulpit. May the fire uh, from the pulpit melt the ice of the hearts of those that sit in the pews. We ask tonight your spirit be here in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. To quickly recap this morning's message, uh, for those of you uh, who were not able to be here, and then for those of you that were here, uh, but um, uh, maybe just need a a, a quick refresher, look back in Micah chapter 6 and verse 2. The Bible says there, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. Controversy. And ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. We said that word controversy means a dispute, a brawl, a quarrel, and then the, and to get into the legal terms of it, a lawsuit, a legal case, or legal process. God looked down at the passive-aggressive Israelites. He saw their attitude toward them, and he felt as though he was being charged with a crime that he had not committed, and he himself had a had a bone to pick with his own people, and so he was ready to go to court with his people. There we see uh, that uh, uh, that uh, they were calling him to court, and that the audience was going to be the foundations of the earth, the strong foundations of the earth. This morning in the eight thirty service, I did not quite lay it out as well as I did in the ten forty five service, but. We talked about why the people would have wanted to put God on trial. You see, um, the northern kingdom had been under siege from the Assyrians. We know, looking back from a historical uh, study, that the Assyrians carried away the ten northern tribes. And they would never, ever reestablish as a nation again. That was it. That was it. They came in and they pillaged... Uh, Israel, they stole away the people, they burned the cities, they took that which they wanted to take, they stole the children to be servants and slaves, they separated family members, they killed those that were the weak, and they left behind those that were the less intelligent, and they left the place in ruins. Can you see a child wandering the street, looking for food? Can you see... Can you see a mother who's so malnourished she no longer has milk to nurse her child? And the child is dying in her arms. Can you see a man walking down the street severely burned from a fire he just stumbled out of? Who were the people that were angry at God? Who were the people that had this controversy with the Lord? Well, it was the Israelites who looked at the evil, the evil that had taken place in the Assyrians. And they said, how could you let this happen to us? You're a loving God. God is love. How could you let this happen? Well, we said this morning that they lacked historical perspective. God took them back down memory lane. 
He walked them down to the day that he had led them out of Egypt. Walked them through the Red Sea. Across the wilderness. Forty years of murmuring and bickering and doubting and complaining. And then the Lord brought them into the promised land. Gave them victory over their enemies in the Canaan land there, the promised land. And then gave them that land until they began to complain. Through all the complaining. Through all the whining. Through all the fussing. God would deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And then they would repent. And then be put back. We find this all in Judges. We said this morning that Rehoboam caused the country to be split. Jeremiah took lead of the northern kingdom there. Nineteen kings. Nineteen kings ruled over Israel and all nineteen did evil which was in the sight of the Lord. That brought them to the place where God said, okay, I'm done with you. I'm just going to turn you over. I'm going to let the Assyrians come in and they're just going to they're going to abduct your children. They're going to kill your loved ones. And they're going to take your money and your possessions. These, these people wondered where their powerful God, where he had gotten off to. These people lacked historical perspective. But not only did they lack historical perspective, they lacked personal responsibility. They made the same mistake we make. God, I can live however I want, and I expect you to protect me, and not allow me or anyone else to hurt me. I want to do whatever I want. I want to live my life however I want. As a country, we want to do whatever we want. We want to kick God out of our courtroom. We want to kick Him out of the schoolroom. We want to kick Him out of, uh, out of society. And we still expect the hand of God to protect us. God looked down at at Israel and he said, I'm sorry, friends, you have told me to leave. And I have left. You can't be mad at me for leaving. You cannot be upset with me for showing myself out the door when you have asked me out the door for generation after generation. I've made reference to it before, but after the 9-11 attack, Billy Graham's daughter was interviewed by one of these morning shows. I think it was CBS's morning show, if I remember right. And it was Katie Couric that asked, I may have the reporter wrong, but a reporter asked Frank, or, uh, 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 Mr. Graham's daughter, he said, how could God let this happen to America? And her response was, America has been kicking God out for years. He's a gentleman. We've asked him to leave, and he left. It's not God's fault. They lacked personal responsibility. This morning we looked at the first three points of the sermon. We looked at the court's audience. We talked about how that the mountains and the hills, the great kingdoms and the small uh, populations were called in to be the audience to observe uh, the, uh, the trial between God and his people. Number two, we looked at the people's accusation, how that they accused God through their disobedience. They accused God through their uh, uh, disinterest. They accused God through their defiance. And then we talked about the Lord's answer, the Lord's rebuttal, the Lord's comeback in court. God basically said this, I gave you deliverance and I gave you direction. I gave you leaders to lead you and I gave you deliverance. This is not my fault. Tonight, we're going to step into this courtroom through the sermon of the prophet Micah. We're going to look at four more observations that came out of this trial between the people of God and the God of all people. Number four is this, the Lord's attorney. The Lord's attorney. Micah steps in and represents God very well in the next several verses. Micah could speak on behalf of God and be understood by the people Because he was God's man. He was God's. He was a prophet of God. And if you were a prophet and you claimed to be a prophet of God and you stood up and proclaimed something and it wasn't true, you were killed. And so people knew if you were a prophet and you'd been around a long time, people knew what you said went. So he was God's prophet, but he was a man. 
And he had lived amongst these people. And he had seen their idolatry. He had seen their paganism. He had seen their, 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 their uh, worshiping of evil spirits. He had seen their offering up of their children up to idols. He had seen all of the wickedness that had pursued. He could relate with them. He could understand where they were and what they were going through. Look down at Micah chapter 6. In verses 6 and 7, it says this, and this is Micah speaking about how the people would feel and, 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 and how ludicrous it would be. Wherewith uh, shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Isn't that the question? How do you bow yourself before the high God? How do you worship God? Notice the methods around Micah that were being used. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We see here the people confused. Micah voices their confusion and shows them how their thought process is wrong. Through these uh, verses, Micah points out three areas where they had their worship Wrong. Letter A, notice God does not like your mindset. God does not like your mindset. Look back down with me at verse number 6. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Great question. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Notice the confusion. How do I bow before God? Is it through the rituals of sacrifice? A few months back, I preached a series of sermons on Sunday morning entitled, Seeing the Savior and the Sacrifices. We took the five sacrifices that are found there in Leviticus, and we outlined how those sacrifices are representative or symbolic of the Savior, the Christ, who would die, and how that when Jesus died on the cross, He became every one of those sacrifices. And God had commanded the Israelites to perform the sacrifices. One thing I made very clear to emphasize throughout that series, was that it wasn't the, the technicalities of the sacrifice that God was all that concerned about. And while he wanted them to dot the I's and cross the T's, more importantly, he wanted their heart. He wanted them to give, do it because they loved him. You see, how did people in the Old Testament got saved? They looked forward to the day the, the Messiah would come. Every time they walked into the, 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 the courtyard there of that tabernacle, and that brazen altar was there, and they would bring a bullock or an ox or a lamb or a goat uh, or, or, or turtle doves or pigeons or maybe the ephah flower, and they'd put that up there, and that offering would take place. That was supposed to represent the Messiah, the Christ that would come, and they looked forward to the day that He would come and would pay for their sins. No, those sacrifices did not save them, but those sacrifices represented the faith of their heart that had saved them. Here we are on the other side of the cross. We look back to the fact that he did come, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven. We have baptism. That baptism will pull right there behind that curtain. It doesn't wash anybody's sins away. It can't wash the sin away. It can wash as much sin away as your bathtub can wash away. But what it does is it, it identifies you with Christ. We took the Lord's Supper this morning. Down here were the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we took the bread and the grape juice that were representative. They don't wash our sins away. What had happened here in this passage is that the people were very baffled and confused about how to worship God. You might say, Pastor, I just don't know how to worship God. Well, can I tell you tonight that it isn't about your sacrifices. This morning I talked about this and we'll hit it again briefly here and I'll give you a couple of other examples. I mentioned that God's not interested in your church attendance. You say, how can you say that? You're a preacher. Don't you want us to come to church? Yes, I want you to come to church. You're not impressing God by being here tonight. You see, you ought to come to church because you feel that God loves you. It's done out of a heart of love. It's the least we can do is to honor the institution of the church that he created. Tonight, I'd ask you this. Is your mindset toward worship that of trying to offer something up to God to impress him? Or are you offering those things up because you love God? They were coming to him and saying, we're performing the burnt offerings. 
We've got the calf exactly the way you described it, without spot and blemish, a year old, and, and it's the right gender, and, and it's inspected by the high priest, and it's put up on the offer, uh, altar, and we're doing everything right, but God does not seem to be impressed. And I would say that God does not need you to do more and more and more and more and more to be able to impress Him. God needs your heart. God does not, and, and so Micah said to the people in this court setting as the attorney of God, God does not like your mindset, letter B. He said, God does not like your methods. Your methods. Look at me back at verses 6 and 7. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offering with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? I gotta to say tonight that I really enjoy the practical Christian life. I like preaching where the, the preacher gets up and he says, do this and do this and do this and you'll get this. How many like preaching like that? You like it practical, right? If you do A, B, and C, you will get X, Y, and Z and you will please God. Boy, I like that. Can I tell you tonight that That kind of preaching from time to time is needed. But if you're doing A, B, and C, and you're doing it like a robot, God does not want a robot. You say, well, pastor, every morning I wake up, and I am in the ritual of reading my Bible. Then I get down on my knees, and I pray. And I would say that the action of reading your Bible and praying... If you're doing it in the form of a robot, your method is wrong. It's wrong. You say, Pastor, every Saturday I show up at the church and I go out soul winning with the church. And I'd say, listen, I'm for it. I wish everybody that's here tonight would come out on Saturday and go soul winning. I think that's commanded of God. In fact, my opinion is that there ought to be more people here on Saturday going soul winning that are here on Sunday night for church. I pray the day that day comes. But if you go out soul winning in order to do A, B, and C, but God doesn't have your heart, then your method is wrong. You say, Pastor, every time I get a paycheck, I move the decimal place one point to the left. I cut that check. I put it in my offering envelope. I drop it in the offering plate. You know, the Bible says God loves a, a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there, its root word means hilarious. Hilarious. The idea that you are so happy when you drop that offering, that, that tithe in the offering plate, that it, it, you just can't help but laugh. You're so happy. You sit there and you white knuckle the pen as you fill out the check and and you stuff that down in the envelope, and the offering plate comes by. There went that cup of coffee I so wanted. There went that trip with the family out for a weekend. My friend, you got the wrong method. God's not looking for you to follow a list of rules. God's looking for you to give Him your heart. When you give Him your heart, you gladly follow the rules. Micah voices the feelings of the people and does it in a way that represents both the people and their inaccuracy with their feelings and God and His heart toward their feelings. These Israelites had allowed secular ideas to infiltrate their concept of pleasing God. Notice here the list in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. You find burnt offerings, calves a year old, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, and then this one, which is just odd, the sacrificing of their children. Look at the end of verse 7 there. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? You say, Pastor, what is that talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, God very, very strongly warned the Israelites not to be involved in child worship. Hope everything's okay. 
Baal and Molech were gods where they would take, they would offer their children up. In fact, one such goddess would sit with her legs crossed. It was a metal lap and they would light a fire in the lap representing sensuality and this metal goddess would hold her metal hands out over that fire and the hands would get glowing hot. They would take their babies and they would put them down in the hands of that goddess. The Israelites had watched the neighboring countries do this. We know for sure there were at least two kings of the northern kingdom of Israel that that personally involved themselves and involved the country of Israel in doing this. God was saying this, he was saying, you're trying to worship me, but you're allowing the ideas from the outside to influence you. Over and over and over again in the book of Psalms, and then even here in the book of Micah, you even go back to 1 Samuel with Saul and, and, and the prophet Samuel, where Samuel tells Saul, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Here Micah says, listen, it's not about dotting the I's and crossing the T's and obeying every last little law. It's, does God have your heart? The Israelites failed to worship God because they had not given their heart to God. They had given their heart to everything else. And then showed up to the the temple and done the rituals in order to try to please God. And then ran back over here in order to live their life however they want. Giving their heart to all the wrong things. And I'm here tonight to say that if you show up on Sunday and you put in your time at church. And then you run out in the world and the world has your heart. And God doesn't have your heart. God is fed up with that lifestyle. What God wants is for you to give your heart to Him. He doesn't want that mindset. He doesn't want those methods. And let her see, God does not need your money. Look down at verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased? Notice the exuberance of this. With thousands of rams? Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Maybe we can please God if we give Him enough money. Or show him enough wealth. God does not need your money. Brother Malucci stood up here, our missionary to Bulgaria, he stood up here uh, last Sunday morning. Many of you weren't able to be here because of the, the weather. And he preached a powerful sermon. He shared an illustration I'm going to share now. If you heard it last week, I apologize, but bear with me here. He said, husband and wife... Madly in love, they get married. He said, uh, the wife wants the husband on Valentine's Day to bring her a dozen roses. The husband's a practical man. Practical man. Why would I buy a plant that's already dead and is going to be even more dead in a couple of days? How many men feel that way? Raise your hand. How many men feel that way? How many ladies feel that way? Several ladies here feel that way as well. Listen, I totally agree with you, amen? Uh, I think my wife even feels that way, so I'm off the hook. Praise the Lord. Um, but this, this wife wanted roses. So he comes home, their first year of marriage, he comes home on Valentine's Day. And the wife meets him at the door, big hug, big kiss, lots of love. She has his favorite meal prepared, but no roses. She doesn't say anything, but she's disappointed. Second year rolls around. Meal on the table, hugging a kiss at the door, in anticipation of roses. Several hints were dropped about roses. The husband's passing the floors on the way home. He's thinking about it, but the practicality side of him kicks in. He says, I love my wife, but I just can't do it. Rolls right past the floors and on home. Year 10 comes around. Husband thinks to himself, you know what, I'm going to do it. Probably there were some choppy waters in the marriage. He stops at the floors, he walks in. How much are the roses? Well, they're $3 a rose. He thinks that's a lot of money to buy a dying plant. But you know what? I love my wife. He slaps the, the, 30, the $30 down, $36 down. They give him the dozen roses and out the door he goes. Tosses them in the back seat. When he gets home, 
After 10 years of marriage, the wife is no longer meeting him at the door. Walks in the, walks in the, uh, the, uh, the house there, walks in the kitchen, and the wife's in there, and just beginning supper, but has no plans of making his favorite meal. He tosses the roses on the table, and he says, Oh, there they are. I bought you your roses. The wife's not impressed. And I would ask you the same question Brother Maluchi asked last week. Was it really the roses that the wife wanted? What was wanted was her husband's heart. My friend, God doesn't want your roses. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your service. He wants your heart. When you give Him your heart, all those other things that we're commanded to do, they fall right in line. Number five, we see the Lord's admonition. The Lord's admonition. I love the book of Micah. The man preached hell, fire, and brimstone. But he did so with a touch of compassion. He allowed the compassion of God to flow through him while he thundered out the truth. We get to verse 8 where we began tonight and we find Micah, the lawyer, the attorney, explaining to the people what it is that God wants from his people. The question was posed, uh, wherewithal or wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? How do I bow before God? How do I come before the Lord? And all of these theories were, were, were posed and Micah shot them all down. And then he said, let me tell you how to do it. Verse 8. We get the Lord's admonition. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before thy God? To, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. That is what God requires of thee if you want to know how to worship Him. Letter A, notice the word, notice this, enjoy justice. Enjoy justice. A judge opened court with this announcement. Gents, I have in hand two checks, a bribe, you might call it, one from the defendant for 15000 another from the accuser for 10000 He said this, my decision is to return the $5,000 to the defendant and decide the case strictly on its merits. He was getting $20,000 out of the deal, amen? Justice, we're to enjoy it. Tonight, this morning we talked about injustices that happen in life and people that ask, well, God, where were you? Where were you to stop this happening? And where were you to stop that happening? One church I pastored in down on the south side of Baltimore. I was the children's pastor there for four years. There was a week where I had to deal with three cases of a child being abused. In the worst possible way, in the same week. Some would ask, where was God to stop that? That's a tough question maybe to answer, but I'll say this, is that while God does not always step in and stop our free will to sin, God always, always will punish those that do wrong. Every time. Every time. You cannot sin and get away with it. You will pay for it in some way. Justice Gray of the Supreme Court once said to a man who had appeared before him in one of the lower courts that he had sat on previously, he's, uh, this man had escaped conviction by some technicality. Justice Gray said this to this man. He said, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge. And that there you will be dealt with according to justice, not according to the law. You'll be dealt with according to justice, not according to the law. Tonight I want to ask you this, do you love justice? Not when it applies to someone else, but when it applies to you. Oh, we like to see the book thrown at someone else. Oh, he he did this, uh, throw the book at him. But then when we do wrong, oh, mercy, mercy, mercy. No, 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 listen, I want God to serve justice on me. 
Why? Because it proves me. It tries my heart. It shows any wicked way in me. I'm thankful for the hand of mercy and of God in my life. But I've got to say that the times where God comes down on me and punishes me. I remember a day when I was a teenager that I went to my dad and I said, I want to thank you for something. And he said, what's that? I said, I want to thank you that when I was small, you spanked me. And he looked at me. And I said, Dad, I've got a lot of friends that are running and sowing their wild oats. And I would be tempted to do the same thing had you not spanked me consistently as a small boy and done so with a heart of love. I'm thankful for the corrective hand of God in my life. I'm thankful that there's times where He brings and drops justice on me and He slams my heart with conviction and He finds ways of punishing me and, 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 and even spanking me, uh, 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 to use the parallel phrase there, and He shows me justice. The Bible says there that we are to do justice. Several months ago I preached a sermon here on a Sunday night about that verse in Matthew 7, 1 that talks about judging others. And I made the point that if someone is not inside of your jurisdiction, you're not to judge them. But what about those that are under your jurisdiction? You're a boss at work. You have uh, employees that answer to you. You're a, you're a, uh, a Sunday school teacher and you got people that come to you for counsel. Uh, then in some senses they would be under your jurisdiction. You're a, you're a, you're a, a, uh, an assistant pastor. You're a deacon. Uh, maybe you're a parent or you're a spouse and you have some sort of authority in somebody's life. Then you are to do justice. You're to do justice. Better be, we see here that in order to do that which God has required of us, in order to honor God and worship Him, we're to embrace mercy. God's justice demanded that Adam and Eve be kicked out of the garden. God's mercy demanded that He provide a path of redemption. God's justice required Cain to be banished from humanity. While God's mercy required that Cain be marked and protected. God's justice required that he wipe out mankind with a flood because the imagination of their heart was only evil continually. God's mercy required that he save Noah and his family. God's justice required that David's baby die due to his adultery. But God's mercy allowed Solomon to be born through the bowels of Bathsheba, the man or the woman with whom David had committed that adulteress. That woman who he had committed adultery with. God's justice requires mankind to be held accountable for their sin. God's mercy required Jesus to go to a cross and to provide redemption for you and I. Oh, I'm so thankful for God's justice. But I am supremely thankful for His mercy. Tonight there are those of you here, you have the justice and mercy thing a little out of balance. You're all about mercy. Oh, pastor, let's just show mercy to everybody. And I would say to you that the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Then there's a, there are those of you here tonight that have it all, all out of balance and you want to throw the book at everybody. And I would say to you that God is love. And I would say that God is a perfect balance of a consuming fire and love. And He wants us to take those attributes and embrace them in our heart. He wants us to learn how to balance His justice and His mercy. Uh, he wants us to learn how to take that truth and that mercy and to live with them both embraced in our heart. Can I give you a solid piece of advice tonight? If I could just preach something to you that I want to stick in your hearts tonight, and that is those that are outside of your jurisdiction, would you learn to apply mercy to them, and would you learn to apply truth to yourself? Would you learn to show others the grace of God and the kindness of God and be harder on you than anybody else is? If you'll do that, my friend, you will learn to embrace the character of God. For those that serve under your jurisdiction or live under your jurisdiction as a leader, you be just with them. You, you hold them accountable. You be merciful and kind in the process as well. But letter C, we see here out of Micah 6.8 that we're to exercise humility. 
Look with me at the end of verse 8 there. It says, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. To walk humbly with thy God. The Jews had gotten good at the technical aspects of walking with God. Oh, they showed up at the temple. They, uh, they, they performed their sacrifices. The priest, I got this word from George yesterday. If I mess it up, George, you can yell out and correct me here. The priest wore phylacteries. Did I get that right? Phylacteries. That would be uh, some wooden thing on their hands and their forehead that would display the Bible from the passage of Deuteronomies. They wore phylacteries, but God did not have their heart. God wants you to walk humbly before Him. Can I ask you this this evening? Are you in constant fellowship with God? You walk throughout the day. You come to a decision that's confusing. Do you stop and go, how do I figure this out? And ignore God? Or is your natural reflex to say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Somebody loses their cool with you. Your blood starts to boil. You want to retaliate, respond. Do you yell back? Or do you drop your head and say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Exercising humility. We talked about earlier getting in the routine of getting up in the morning or maybe in the evening reading your Bible and praying and doing it as a, as a method, doing it as an exercise, but not really giving God your heart with it. Let me just give you something very practical here if I could. Change your routine up a little bit. And I don't mean the time you read, but maybe where you read. I'm not talking about necessarily the time that you read, but how you read. Change up how you take notes in your Bible and how you mark scriptures and how you pray. Uh, totally take your prayer life and throw it up in the air and change the order in which you pray for things. And let God know that you're working hard at keeping that relationship with Him fresh. It's fresh. And here the Lord uh, uh, said to His people, He said... Here's where you went off the track. You, did, you had the wrong mindset. You had the wrong method. Uh, you had the idea that somehow I was going to be pleased with you flashing your money at me. No, what I want you to do is enjoy justice and embrace mercy and exercise humility. Number six, we see the people's affliction. Look down with me at Micah chapter 6 verse 9. The Bible says, There the Lord's voice crieth unto the city. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. Letter A, we see the rod's correction. Oftentimes, we look down at some trial that we're going through in our life, and we say, you're not fair, God. And God says, hold on just a minute. I'm perfect. I make no mistakes. I make no mistakes. You know, I think part of the reason why people get frustrated with God is they lose sight of just how sinful they are. You know, this afternoon I was thinking about this while I laid down to rest for a few minutes. And this thought dawned on me. If we would just all live with this in the forefront of our mind that we deserve to go to hell. Anything you get above that is God being gracious and good to you. That lady sitting in a house that's burnt down, sitting in the ashes and the rubble, soot on her face, a child that's crying in her arms, it's starving. You know, if she had put her faith and trust in Christ at some point, she was in a better spot there, sitting there in that rubble, than she would have been in hell. You say, Pastor, I was abused as a child. Listen, the people in hell would rather live getting abused than be in hell. You say, Pastor, uh, I, you don't know how I've been taken advantage of and hurt. And the people that have run over me and, 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 and just caused great pain in my life. Listen, the people in hell would trade places with you in an instant just to get out of the flames of hell. And if you've put your faith in Christ and He saved you, there will be a day where you will be redeemed and you will be made whole. We look at the correcting hand of God and we have some pain and hurt in our life and we see something that happens to us that somebody else is treating us in a way that may seem totally unfair and we say, 
God, you're not being just. And I would say, take God off the stand. He's not on trial. He's the perfect judge. A more mature attitude would be, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? Letter B, we see their reputation corrupted. Look down at verse 9 of, of, uh, of, of Micah 6 again. The Bible says this, The Lord's voice crieth into the city. This phrase here really caught my eye when I was studying this passage. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. The man of wisdom shall see thy name. What's that mean? That, mean a, that means a wise man, a man who's able to see things clearly. He's going to see you for who you really are. What were the people's affliction? Well, their name became mud. We mentioned earlier how that the Assyrians would wipe out this northern kingdom and they would never, ever, ever recover from that. Their reputation totally varnished, totally drug in the mud, totally destroyed. I would tell you today that if you want to live your life in a, in a reprobate way because you're shaking your fist at God over some injustice or perceived injustice in your life, be careful. Be careful. The rod of correction is coming and your reputation will be run down. Let her see. We see their reprobate counselors. Look with me down at verse 16 of Micah chapter 6. For the statutes of Omri are kept and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you walk in their counsels that I should make thee a desolation and the inhabitants thereof in hissing. Therefore, ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Aha. Now we're getting down as to why God brought such great punishment on his people. They followed the statutes of Omri. Who was Omri? Omri was Ahab's father. And in, if you read through the kings of the northern kingdom there, uh, you'll see, the Bible will say, uh, up to Omri, the Bible will say about the wicked kings that they followed in the steps of Jeroboam. But then when they get to Omri, no longer is it did Omri fall in the steps of Jeroboam. The Bible says that Omri was more wicked than all the kings before him. And Ahab came along and Ahab said, no, dad, I'm not going to let you outdo me. Then Ahab lived to be more wicked than Omri. And then after Ahab, all the kings that followed Ahab, the Bible says they followed in the steps of Ahab, their father. God looked down at them and said, listen, you have followed the example of Omri. You have followed the example of Ahab. You have brought Baal worship in front of me. You have been pagan. You have been wicked. You have ignored me. You have neglected me. You have chosen idolatry and wickedness over me. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to drop the hammer on you. Can I ask you a question tonight? Who are your heroes? God ought to be your hero. Who do you allow to influence you? Unfortunately, tonight we have people sitting in the pews. The television has more influence over you than the Bible does. Those shows that come on HBO have more pull over what you think and how you see the world than the Holy Book does. We have people here tonight, some co-worker has your ear more than a Sunday school teacher does. And I would say to you to identify the reprobate counselors and get rid of them. This is the book of truth. And anybody that holds this book up and preach it, you need to give them an ear in your life. Especially if they're preaching it the right way. Number seven, we see the Lord's absolution. And that's a legal term. When I alliterate, I try to use words everybody knows. I try not to stretch alliteration. The word absolution is a legal term. We're talking in the sense of courtroom here. The word absolution in some ways, not totally, but in some ways means pardon. Look with me down at, uh, turn over with me to Micah chapter seven. Remember, the book of Micah is made up of three sermons. Micah 1, uh, let's see, uh, Micah 1 and 2, Micah 3 and 4, uh, 3, 4 and 5, and then Micah uh, 6 and 7. And here at the very end of Micah, again, I talked about how Micah preached hellfire and brimstone, but then he gets down to the end of chapter 7 and he shows the compassion of God. Look here at verses 18, 19, 20, some of the most poetic verses in all the Bible. The Bible says, Who is a God like unto thee? 
that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Letter A, we see he pardons because of his character. Look back at verse 18. At the very end of the verse, it says this, because he delighteth in mercy. One day, one day God is going to totally pardon the nation of Israel for all their crimes and injustices. He's going to set up rule and reign in Jerusalem. He's going to rule from Israel. It will be the centric uh, political place of the world. He will rule and, and he will call the shots across this planet that we live in. It will look very different after the seven year tribulation. But nevertheless, he will rule mankind from that throne. The Bible says that he will cast their iniquity in the depths of the sea. Why? Because of them? No. Because of his mercy. Why does God pardon anyone? Is it because we behave a certain way? That's because of his character. It's because of his character. One day Jesus Christ is going to return in the clouds. The trumpet's going to blow. Those who have believed in Christ will be raptured in the air. It could happen at any moment. We believe in the imminent return of Christ around here. It could happen at any moment. It could happen right now. Jesus is going to come back and blow that trumpet, and we're going to be gone. We're going to be gone. When that happens, we'll let Brother Zagru come up and preach the service. Amen? <laughs> Brother Zagru, I wouldn't have said it if I meant it. Amen? Uh, but we're going to be gone. We're going to be taken out of here. As soon as that happens, 144,000 Jews are going to get saved. They're going to look around. They're going to say, man, we had it wrong. Those Christians had it right. They're going to get saved, and a revival is going to break out across this world. They're going to go to every corner of the globe. They're going to find every remote village. They're going to preach the gospel everywhere. Revival is going to break out on this planet. It's going to be wonderful. But why is he going to allow that to happen? Because the Jews are somehow going to just get it all figured out? No, because his mercy. Because of his character. Tonight, let me just tell you this, is that God did not pardon you and give you the gift of heaven because you're something special. God looked down at you and I and he saw that we were unlovable and he loved us anyway. Why? Because his character said he could do that. His character is impeccable. His character is flawless. Listen, I can't love someone who is so wretched and unlovable that has hurt me and attacked me and ripped me to shreds. I'm a frail human being. I can't do that. But God looked down at a mankind who had butchered and killed his son on the cross with our sins. And he said, I'm going to love them because of my character and because of my mercy. You might be here tonight and you might think that you can get into heaven by earning favor with God. That somehow you can be good enough to get into heaven. And I would tell you this is that I'm not going to heaven because of my works. Because my works in the sight of God are filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. I'm getting into heaven because his character allows him to forgive me. Letter B, we see he pardons because of his compassion. Look at verse 19, he says, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. As I read through the Old Testament, and I consider the actions of the Israelites, and I look at God, and from His vantage point, I try to understand how God felt. You see, God at times just so put out with His people, so frustrated with them. His anger just, at this point, just came boiling over, and He allowed the Syrians to come in and just wipe them out and even oppress Judah for a time. Although they did not totally overtake them. But in God's heart, He looked down at them and He wept. He had compassion. He said, one day I'm going to restore you because I love you. What is it that causes God to pardon you and I from our sin? It's not because of us. We're unlovable. It's because His character is flawless. It's his compassion is, is bottomless. He looks down and he says, you're unlovable, but I can't help but love you. 
I think of the passage in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus looked over the city there in verses 36 and 37 and he wept. The Bible said he had compassion on them because they were sheep having no shepherd. Letter C, we see he pardons because of his covenants. Verse 20 of Micah 7 says, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn, thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the day of old. You know what's always amazed me about this verse? Just the whole concept of the covenant. You know, back in Genesis chapter 12, when God said to Abraham, I want you to pick up your things and I want you to go. You know, God already knew the end game. He already knew that Micah would be writing this because it was already written in heaven. Don't you think God was probably tempted to say to, to, to look down at Abraham and say, nah, nah, I, I, I just think I'm going to let Abraham be a normal person. You know, I don't have to pick a race. I don't have to pick a people group. Nah, I don't want all the heartache. I don't want all the hurt. Abraham, you just stay in Earth. Abraham, you just stay in Earth of the Chaldees, and you just you just be you. But God stepped out anyway, in spite of how they would behave, in spite of the murmuring and the complaining, in spite of all of the stiff neck and hard hearts and uncircumcised of hearts. And He said, Abram, I want you to get up and I want you to go to a place that I'll tell you to go to, and I want you to found a great nation that I'm going to love, and I'm going to love them in spite of them. God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. And God always keeps his promises. Tonight I'm here to tell you that we've been given a covenant with God. As Gentiles. John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, and 29 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you've asked Him to save you, and He's got you in His hand, He's never going to let you go. Here in this passage, we see that the people called God into court for neglecting them. Throughout chapter 6 and 7, we see that God defended himself, God proved their guilt, God sentenced them, and then God promised pardon. Let me finish the sermon by asking you three simple questions. Are you enjoying God's justice? Are you embracing God's mercy? Are you exercising humility as you walk with God? Or are you just trying to dot all the I's and cross all the T's so you can somehow impress God? My friend, God's not impressed. He wants your heart. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd help us to...